0: Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. If you haven't done so already, be sure to click that follow and subscribe button and rate and review the podcast. It would really mean a lot to me. In this episode, I talk with Cecilia Shelton about disrupting traditional technical and professional communication genres, embracing a black feminist pedagogical framework, digital and cultural rhetorics social justice and anti-racism, and historically black colleges and universities. Cecilia D. Shelton is an assistant professor of English at the University of Maryland College Park. She is a technical and professional communication scholar whose work is situated at the intersections of digital and cultural rhetorics. In 2019, she earned her doctorate in rhetoric, writing, and professional communication from East Carolina University drawing on black feminist theory and practice. Her research prioritizes the perspectives, goals, and experiences of black people and other communities structured into the margins as a way to insist on more equitable solutions to contemporary social, political, and organizational problems. Her dissertation work argues that black activism and the black rhetorical tradition in general is a kind of technical communication and offers a methodology that enables a cultural rhetorical framing of technical and professional communication. Cecilia, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about your approach to teaching technical and professional communication. And one thing I know is that you attempt to disrupt traditional norms or frameworks and expectations or assumptions about tech comm and professional communication genres. Do you mind talking about how you do this work?
1: I think that coming into a sort of tech comm or business communications course, students sort of, you have to start with where students are. Um, and the first things that pop into um, into their heads are like the genres that they associate with um, technical communication or professional communication, right? And so um, I kind of start there and what I've found out is that even though lots of undergraduate students, some of them, you know, you can't really profile them all uh, in, in sort of one neat way, but lots of them have never worked a professional job before, right? Some of them have never worked any job before, you know, and and others of them have different kinds of um, professional and work experiences. But in spite of that, they all have really clear um, ideas and conceptions about what it means to communicate professionally right? So they can name some of these genres, they can sort of name emails and reports and memos and um, policies and handbooks as examples of technical and professional communication. Um, And they can talk about the kinds of impressions they have of those genres, the kinds of expectations they have around those genres. And, And when you have these initial conversations with them, it's really clear that they sort of have absorbed from just the culture in general, if not their, whatever kinds of education they've already had in these areas that they understand the sort of norms that these forms of communication are meant to be objective and neutral and efficient and clear, right? Um, And that they function in particular ways in um, institutions and organizations and industries and businesses, right? And their interpretation of how those genres of writing function is that is that they're doing fair and neutral work that they're not sort of valuated. And so I think that the ways that we might typically approach teaching um, these teaching students to communicate in these common genres by introducing them to templates in some cases, or you know a more rhetorical approach, even by talking about the audiences that they might be encountering through these, you know, styles or genres of communication um, and what the generic features are, right? That's important, but I think it needs, we need to disrupt those notions that that this kind of communication or any kind of communication can be neutral or objective. And, And so I try to sort of start with the idea that Um, that neutrality and objectivity, that that's a myth. And I find that it's not enough just to say that, you know, we're not being neutral or objective, even though it feels like a report or a policy or an email does not have values embedded in it. It does. I feel like I want them to understand that we should pay attention to what values are embedded and how those are made less apparent to us because they come from the sort of cultural norms that we are told are acceptable and how we then have an opportunity to be intentional about what kinds of values we want to take up when we're composing in those genres.
0: In your article, Shifting Out of Neutral and Technical Communication Quarterly, You talk about using a Black feminist pedagogy as a means for equity and social justice in technical and professional writing. This Black feminist framework offers an alternative approach to teaching that helps you disrupt the traditional norms and expectations, right?
1: It sort of takes a different stance um, than sort of a traditional sort of Eurocentric masculinist kind of approach to Um, pedagogy where, you know, lived experience is a valuable kind of evidence, where it's not necessary to feign this um, distance between your emotion and the object or the topic of your inquiry, right? Instead, a Black feminist um, epistemology and, and then pedagogy invites students to value lived experience, to think about their personal expressiveness, to think about personal accountability, to think about ethics, think about people. I I think it's important to ask students not to only think about the business context and the objects and the topics that we typically discuss when we're talking about business and technical communication, but to also think about who are the people in these environments, right? Who are our colleagues? Who are the publics that we're serving? Who are our supervisors, our customers? Usually that sort of figure in a student's mind is sort of a stick figure. Um, but if we were to add flesh and bones to that stick figure and not interrogate that, that stick figure would turn into probably a white, cisgender, heterosexual, man who's middle class and educated right, and that means something and so I try to um, I try to invite students to think about other people and think about the ways that the emails and reports and policies and um, documentation that they're composing that they're also composing the environments and the context that other people live and work and play and consume within those contexts that have been composed by those documents.
0: So a black feminist pedagogical framework allows us to analyze and ask students to think about traditional professional communication genres, such as cover letters and resumes and reports. I'm interested in what those conversations look like in class and whether you bring in other technical and professional genres that maybe better complements this approach to teaching?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I try to do both. Right. So, um, because, you know, students are coming to the course expecting and maybe needing to get some experience with, you know, with emails and resumes and cover letters and reports. Right. They're like, I need to know how to write this. I need to know how this is different than an essay or, um, or something like that, right? So I want them to have that practice. And so, in fact, the the example I talk about in the article and I've talked about in other places um, is a good example of that. Their students are writing a report. Students need to know how, they're, you know, report is sort of a genre that's taken up in lots of different industries, lots of different contexts. It's a good sort of skill for students to have that they could apply. I try to think of, the kinds of genres that students can apply across different professional or public or industry contexts, right? Report is one of those. And so, yeah, we're talking, I want them to learn about the genre conventions, right? About headings and subheadings and how reports need to be easy to navigate for readers because they're not reading them sort of cover to cover, but they might use an executive summary or they might use a table of contents to go to a particular page and sort of move in different ways through the document. So we're talking about genre and we're thinking rhetorically in that way. But I also, in the example that's in the article, they are advocating for the inclusion of a gender-inclusive restroom and a lactation room in an office space, right? And so I'm asking, and it's in like a, I think the way that it's framed in the assignment, it's in like a small tech company, right? So I'm asking them also to think about issues that involve people, right? Um, You know, in the tech industry, there is a dearth of, um, you know, of women and gender non-conforming folks already. And so I'm asking them to think about gender in um, complex ways in the tech industry. And then I'm asking them to think about, you know, if Perhaps you're operating in a space that has been dominated by men. What does it look like to think about writing in a way that will writing toward like policy and articulating how a space comes to be, what the logic and the reasoning is for a space to an audience maybe of men, but about non-men, right? You're talking maybe to lots of men who don't have these lived experiences, but need to bring these spaces that are important into being. What does that mean? Might they not know what happens in a lactation room, right? Um, is it possible that they um, have not uh, heard from or talked to um, or understand the perspective of um, someone who is working in a workplace and who is trans, right? Or um or gender non-conforming and needs to use the bathroom, right? And so what I'm trying to help students understand is that, you know, when policies get composed around like dress codes and what you're allowed to wear and how bodies are allowed to show up or not and what spaces people are available and are not available and how people are allowed to exist in those spaces then that report that justifies that space or doesn't, that policy that governs how people are to use a space, it is composing how the people in that space get to exist. And I want students to consider lived experience as a valuable kind of evidence. You know, they do other kinds of research. We talk about um, scholarly sources alongside like trade publications. What do people, other sort of people working in the field what are they saying to one another through trade publications, what are scholars saying, what new sort of research, but also let's hear the voices of people who might be affected by these issues. Um, Let's take their lived experience seriously and let's center
0: that. Your teaching also intersects digital and cultural rhetorics too. I was hoping you could spend some time talking about what it looks like to take a social justice-based approach to teaching online and/or building and constructing online curriculum that centers on social justice.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think I'll, I'll sort of marry my last answer and this one a little bit because I didn't quite get, like, I didn't quite get to this part. But I think earlier you asked me about like whether I'm looking for um, assignments or genres that sort of adapt more to the social justice, like. Um, angle that I'm trying to take. And so I do um, I do those traditional sort of genres. But this past year, I sort of added a project at the end that gets more at my own research um, and helping students to sort of continue in this disruptive uh, sort of perspective on tech comm. So I asked students this spring and summer when I taught Um, a version of this course to think about memes as a kind of technical communication. And so that kind of connects to the digital piece too, right? I'm thinking about, especially, you know, after mid-March, once um, everyone went online, we were were in the midst of this pandemic, like I'm asking them to think about how people are using social media and memes as a way to share information, um, as a way to solve problems, as a way to help people do things, um, to help people make decisions, right? I'm thinking about like my my 10-year-old somehow, I guess on TikTok or something, came across this meme to make a face mask out of a sock and did, right? And so, you know, she's like making this argument that she can go to Target in whatever it was, I don't know, <laughs> April, right? Because she's got this uh, sock mask. So yeah, I'm I'm asking students to at the same time as I want them to pay attention to those traditional genres, I I do want them to be like critical consumers and producers of language and communication in all of their discourse communities, and you know in a professional setting, you know that's going to be their emails and reports and stuff. But you know they're online and they're on social media and they are in even It's important for them to understand that um, in this day and age, the companies that they work for are online and on social media. And that is, you know, a job for someone that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. Somebody's managing social media and communicating on behalf of a company specifically on a Twitter account through memes, right? These are important sort of discursive tools that, you know, they may have. A level of access to and um, facility with because they're sort of accustomed to and native to that like context a little bit. But I don't want to take for granted that they are consuming and producing those in ways that are critical and that they're sort of applying these frameworks that I'm offering them to those contexts. So I try to pull those things together. And, you know, I think there are ways we can do that, you know, around things like the pandemic and the kinds of stuff that we see coming out <clears throat> to help people navigate that. I think the activism that's happening right now, my research talks about activism as a kind of tech com, specifically Black activism on Twitter and my diss and other kinds of activism. And so just thinking about technical communication beyond sort of these uh, institutional, organizational, professional, right? Even those words are laden with certain kinds of assumptions. And there is work happening outside of, you know, workplaces where people are getting paid. Activism is work, right? It's really, really important work. Um, And so how are folks communicating in order to make that activism happen? And why aren't we pointing to that and calling it technical communication? And what happens when we do?
0: You taught and worked as the Writing Center Director at St. Augustine's University a small private HBCU or Historically Black College and University in Raleigh, North Carolina from 2008 to 2015. And you co-wrote an article in 2014 about writing centers and code meshing called Disrupting Authority. You talk about resisting notions of standardized English and you talk about marrying writing center practices with anti-racism. How would you suggest writing centers go about doing this social justice activist work intersecting writing center practices with anti-racism
1: yes yeah, so i love writing centers for so many reasons right but i in undergrad i was a writing center consulting um i was an english major and a spanish minor and i was reading and writing in english and spanish and the writing center was just getting started and i started tutoring and i loved it Um, And so after my master's degree and the opportunity to work, so my master's degree work is, my degree is in English from NC State University, but my concentration was sociolinguistics. So I was thinking about language variation and dialect. And so it really felt like an interesting opportunity to teach writing at an HBCU Um, and sort of bring all those, and and direct a writing center, and bring all those parts of my experiences together, right, because I understood that the students at the HBCU, I had, I had been at an HBCU myself for undergrad, I knew that they would bring with them lots of dialects, right, that were not considered standard English, Um, and at the same time, I knew how important writing centers could be, so, you know, the thing that struck me then and still strikes me now about writing centers is that they're in a really interesting space because they aren't giving out grades, right? Students are coming for help. Um, And there are other kinds I recognize of like metrics of their success, but they're not giving out grades, but they do have a measure of like authority around what is considered good writing on a campus. And so the question is, how do you use that power? How do you use that ethos, that credibility to the audience of the campus community? Um, and different campuses are different, right? There's different institutional contexts. So that, that the answer to that question is not the same for every writing center, but it's a question every writing center can ask itself. Like here we are, we're the writing center. People trust us to say, what is good writing? Is there such a thing as good writing? So you can think about that. Um, And we did at St. Aug, we did, you know, I I spent some time in a graduate assistantship as an assistant director of the writing center at ECU where I did my doctoral work. So we did that there. You can think about that in terms of what happens when students walk into the space. What do they see? What books do they see? What authors do they see? What consultants do they see? Um, How are those consultants prepared to talk about writing, right? How are they prepared? You know, we've had this uh, students write to their own language for decades now. How do we operationalize that? How do you talk to students about the choices that they're making and the implications of those choices? How do you follow their lead about how much they want to resist or align themselves with different kinds of choices? Uh, How do you, what is your center stance on like the topics, the things that students are writing about? So what are you affirming in, in what students bring in. What does the space feel like, right? What, what kinds of bathrooms are available <laughs> in the Writing Center? Going back to the assignment that I had my tech students doing, there are messages about who the Writing Center is in relationship to the students and the staff and the faculty. Um, how do you engage people other than students and faculty, staff? How can you serve them? Who are they and what do they need? So I think there are all kinds of ways that writing centers can think about the kinds of power that they have and the kinds of ethos they have and what it means to hold that power and use it in meaningful ways in service of, you know, marginalized communities. It's important not just for Black students or other students of color, but for white students to walk in and see these examples elevated and taken seriously and to understand that there are ways of inquiry, there are kinds of language that are equally valuable, that have important things to say and to grapple with them, right? And to, to, for them to not be the audience all the time and for them to sit with that and for it to be okay with that, like actually this person is not talking to or about you. And so that's okay, you'll, you'll be all right you can sit with that. You can ask questions about it. You can learn from it. I've done that for a long time, so <laughs> it's okay.
0: So we've talked about a Black feminist pedagogical framework to teaching, and you just shared about the directing the writing center at St. Augustine's University. You also went to Winston-Salem State University, a public HBCU in North Carolina as an undergrad. As a graduate student- You taught at NC State and East Carolina University. I was hoping you could talk about all these different institutional contexts and sites, and maybe even more specifically, how HBCUs have shaped who you are as a teacher and scholar.
1: (laughs) I said before that I love writing centers. I also love HBCUs. They are amazing and important institutions they, you know, they're not without problems, sure, but they are incredibly valuable in the landscape of higher education. As a student, um, and lots of people, you know, have this narrative, it's not unique to me, um, but, you know, I was a, I was a high-achieving kid in, in high school, um, and so I did, you know, honors AP classes, whatever, but when I went to my HBCU, you know, I was not one of a few black kids in those classes anymore. And it was such an affirming experience because um, my blackness was centered and valued and I was able to expand even my own notions of blackness, right? I was able to see the heterogeneity, like the vastness of the identities um, and experiences of, of Blackness. And that gave me the confidence to move into graduate work at NC State. So when I was then an instructor at St. Augustine's University, I knew how important it was for me to be there with and for those students. I knew the kinds of relationships my professors had with me. I knew how meaningful they were. And I know that students have these kinds of experiences at other institutions too, but I knew how special HBCUs were from the student perspective. As an instructor, what has been, what taught me the most, I guess, is seeing that like vastness from the other side, right? So in one classroom, I would have um, students who were coming to HBCUs um, in the tradition of their families and communities, um, as sort of a legacy of HBCU attendees. I had students who had been standout students at their institution, at their in high school, and had chosen an HBCU, and and had the choice of other kinds of institutions too. And I had students for whom HBCUs offered them an opportunity when other institutions would not. Right. All of that inside of one classroom, the range that I needed to teach to, that taught me a lot, right? You had to show up and you had to know what you were doing. You had to engage all those students. Um, I think that that range in an HBCU classroom, there's range in every classroom, right? Um, But I just have found that having to prepare and engage with all of those students take them seriously and meet them where they were, but also find a way to bring us all together around topics that were meaningful to them. I learned to pay attention to the different kinds of experience and expertise students brought to the classroom. Um, So students have different lived experiences that are valuable, that teach them a lot of important things (laughs) beyond what you can learn in a classroom but that are valuable when you do bring them into a classroom. So you know, I've been public, private, big, small, HBCU, PWI, um, regional. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I have been at lots of different kinds of institutions with lots of different kinds of students. The students I was serving at East Carolina University that I was writing about in that article, a lot of those students were conservative white men from rural Eastern North Carolina. Not the same at all from as my students, you know, at St. Aug. And so um, I think that keeping my own commitments, pedagogical commitments, but having different audiences for those commitments and for that pedagogy, I think I learned the, what's the word I want to use? To be like flexible and nimble and the dexterity as a teacher. Um, from my HBCU experiences.
0: Thanks, Cecilia. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.